Thank you, Pete. I want to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, this has been an extraordinary season, as has been referenced several times already today, and for us in advance, particularly because of all that's happened with PJ. So it's four and a half years ago now that the news broke about uh, John Smythe, PJ's dad, and the absolutely extraordinary abuse which he was exposed as having carried out over a long season in the UK and then in Zimbabwe and clearly also into his time in South Africa. And uh, just in the last few weeks, the book detailing all the gruesome and literally gory details has come out, Andrew Greystone's Bleeding for Jesus. What a terrible title. Has anybody else actually read this? Only one or two. Um, yeah, pretty traumatic read, and of course the Anglican Church are involved in the Making Review, which is their big assessment of uh, uh, of all that happened with John Smythe and Jonathan Fletcher and other people, which was meant to have been out some time ago. We think our review assessment is taking a while. The Making Review, completely different league, should have been out some time ago because the complexities of that delayed and delayed and delayed. But when that comes out, it will be, I'm sure, very painful as well. So we've, we've, we've lived in the, in the reality of that, and that, of course, has also run parallel to all other kinds of things happening in society at large and happening in, in the wider church. We are living in a society which does seem to be increasingly polarized. We have lived through the era of Trump and through the era of Brexit and all the polarization of those issues, and we live in a society which is characterized by the hermeneutic of suspicion, that the way that people interpret the world is through a lens of suspicion, especially when it comes to any kind of authority, that all authorities, whether it's parental authority or teacher authority in school or the police or politicians, especially politicians, anybody's, anybody who claims to have authority is viewed with suspicion. That is the lens through which we, the jaded lens through which we look at the world. And that's been true, I think, throughout my lifetime. That's been true. The hermeneutic of suspicion has been increasing throughout my lifetime. But it now feels like it's at a fever pitch that uh, anybody who claims any kind of authority or wants to step up and lead in any kind of way is immediately viewed with suspicion. And when do you ever hear anybody speaking positively about a politician or some institution? It's always, always suspicious. And rolled into that, we've then seen the things of more recent months and years, which have increased or been born out of those things and increased them, and the whole thing kind of ramps up. It's this a feedback cycle, so we've had Black Lives Matters, which for the guys in the States has been obviously a much bigger issue for us than us, but for, I know, some of us, and certainly those of you in London particularly, I know this has been, that's been a painful, costly one to try and navigate. We've got all the stuff, constant stuff around sexuality, particularly the transgender, the gender ideology stuff, and all that's happening with, with, with trans stuff, and just a constant kind of relentless battering promotion of what is actually just madness and then of course we've had COVID and uh, I think some of these things certainly have been more testing for our brothers in the States because everything has been ramped up there that obviously the Trump stuff has been American and the BLM stuff has been so focused in the States and all the rest and just some names which might be familiar to us reading stories about guys who've just gone through this I know these guys have gone through the fire on, on, on some of these things, but somebody like David Platt, who'd be known to a lot of people who, in his church, there was a kind of a little coup recently where they were trying to appoint some elders, and 
people, this hermeneutical suspicion kind of scuppered that, and Jason Meyer, uh, John Piper's successor at Bethlehem Baptist, having left Bethlehem Baptist now, and real crisis in leadership at Bethlehem Baptist because of all these cultural issues coming into the church. And it's been seven years since Mark Driscoll left Mars Hill, and there's been that podcast. Who's actually, who's, who's, I don't want to assume anything, who's listened to at least some of the Mars Hill podcast, and most of you, so you'll know what I'm, we're talking about at least. And so against that kind of backdrop, we, there's some circumspection and some reflection which is necessary, that we do need to be circumspect as we seek to move forward, and we do need to have some reflection about how we do life, church life, ministry, and Riggs has already led us so helpfully in that, one of the things that came through for us in our time in Paris was about even our name, Advance, which can sound very triumphalistic, but actually the context, and I think Donnie will be speaking to this this evening, the context of Scripture, where that name even comes from, actually is a place of, of, of hardship and suffering. It's, it's a humble advance. It's advancing despite and in the midst of hardship. It's not a triumphalistic thing. Um, but we need that kind of self-reflection, uh, not to be... Triumphalism isn't going to cut it. And the reality is we're always, always going to be influenced by the culture. We, we always are, often in ways which we're blind to. Blind spots are, by definition, hard to see, hard to spot our own blind spots. Uh, here at Gateway, we've just finished a series teaching through the seven churches of Revelation, which I know some others of you done, have done recently as well. And It's interesting getting into that, seeing how often the things that the Lord speaks to the seven churches are culturally connected kind of powers and principalities in their societies, cultural trends, economic, religious, social, political things in those cities, then reflected in the things which either the Lord commends the church for or condemns them for. And the reality is that we are all shaped by our cultural context, often in ways which we don't see, and we need somebody to speak to us and say, this is an issue. It's true in every generation, certainly true in ours. And in this season, there has been a lot of raking over um, the way that evangelicalism has been held with a cultural, kind of a cultural captivity when it comes to the cult of celebrity. And again, probably particularly even more in the in American context here in the UK, we don't have megachurches and that kind of stuff in the same way, but we're certainly influenced by the American scene, and we at times have been caught up in that celebrity culture as well in terms of who we've looked to for influence and who we've listened to. And the whole model of pastor as CEO, uh, more than pastor as father and shepherd. And then we see it in the divisions in our churches, in our culture. And our churches reflect our culture in the way that politics has so often come to seem to be more important than the gospel. And that seems to be what's happened in David Platt's church, what's happened in Jason Meyer's church. Some of us have experienced in our churches to more or less degree, that politics becomes more important than the gospel. And it might be that we have ourselves been blind in some of these things, haven't been aware of how we've been shaped and how we've spoken, how we've thought and how culturally captive we might have been. And then, of course, the trouble is that it's easy for the pendulum to swing the other way. That's what pendulums do. And every generation does this. They see what the previous generation did, where that pendulum swing, swing was, and the next generation swings the other way. And there's a constant kind of course correction needed, but kind of a pendulum swing against some of the trends in evangelicalism, the kind of cult and celebrity and the rest has been the whole 
phenomenon now of deconstructing. And that's presented as now we're being genuine, now we're being humble, now we're being authentic. And the reality is that often that is just a kind of a postmodern Instagram introspection. I'm going to Instagram my deconstruction, which again is just another form of self-publicity. And even if we don't go to the full Joshua Harris and deconstruct our faith, I think there is a danger that we can throw some babies out with the bathwater and we could end up being emasculated and we could end up not being faithful. So I've got a few examples of babies which I've picked up, especially from the Mars Hill podcast and from Andrew Grayson's book, kind of things I think where there's a kind of a, an attack on certain things which we might then think, well, let's chuck them out, but we need to be careful that we... We do need to throw out the bathwater, because there's got to be circumspection, circumspection, not circumcision, circumspection, <laughs> circumspection and reflection. <laughs> but we don't, we don't throw the baby out. Okay, so the, fir- the, first, the first baby is spiritual fathering, spiritual fathering. So a, a claim that I have kind of heard is that for leaders to, church leaders to be fatherly reflects toxic masculinity and opens the door for abuse. And so fathering is not what church leaders should seek to do. Now, toxic masculinity and abuse, of course, is possible, exactly as it is in the biological family. In biological families, if there's abuse, it's normally perpetrated by fathers. And so fathers can be toxic and can be abusive, but that doesn't mean we should dispense with fatherhood. And of course, in our crazy world, this is pushed to the ultimate extreme where there are serious moves to expunge the word father from birth certificates and so on and talk about parent A and parent B to completely remove the concept of father. Now, I think my experience now in in a long time in church life and 25-plus years in full-time ministry is that I have experienced times when fathering has felt somewhat cloying, to be honest, and when there's been talk about fathering and the need for fathering, which I've personally not found helpful, found it somewhat cloying. The reality is I have a biological father, and I have a heavenly father, and I don't really feel that I need many other fathers in that kind of sense. And so actually one of, the advance, one of the emphases we've had in advance has been much more upon being brothers rather than the kind of the top-down heavy fathering thing. And um, now we know we need to work on this, and with the guys talking last night, it's very apparent that in our sense of brothering together, there's been perhaps a deficit there, and certainly some of this room have felt a brothering deficit over... a recent years, and again, there's all kinds of reasons we can articulate for why that might have happened, but without wanting to make excuses, just to acknowledge that, that you might be sitting here thinking, I haven't felt much brotherhood in our partnership recently, and if that's the case, I'm sorry, and we do need to do that better. But one of the things that we have kind of valued, and certainly I valued coming into advance from a different background, was that there was amongst us less emphasis upon church oversight, who is overseeing me, who's my father in the Lord and more emphasis upon church-to-church strengthening, brothers together, moving forward together. And, and I found that refreshing. But fathers is perhaps the best description of what elders are meant to be 
are meant to do. To be a father is absolutely vital. If you're an elder, you're called to be a father. And uh, read, read 1 Timothy. People struggle with 1 Timothy, particularly because of the one verse about women not teaching. But you read the book, you read it, read it contextually, read it intelligently, look at it, see what it's saying, read, follow the arguments. Don't just read verses in isolation. It is a, an epistle about church as family and family as church. What is a church meant to be like? Well, it's meant to be like a family. What is the biological family meant to be like? Well, it's meant to be like the church. And that's the, the whole flow of the epistle. And in that, what is the role of elders then? Well, elders are meant to be fathers. And how do you choose elders? Well, you choose elders who are fathers, who demonstrate in their own, ho- own households the ability to father. The, the whole thing holds together. And then my uh, normal go-to passage for when I'm appointing elders, 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul writes, hold in the highest regard those who work hard amongst you, who care for you, and who admonish you. That, that is a definition of fathering. What is it to be a father? If you're to be a faithful father, well, you need to work hard. Care. Look after your family. Work hard. Look after your family. You need to care. You've got to care for your wife and your kids. And as a father, you are also called to admonish, which I think is the hardest thing as an elder I find to do, to admonish people. It's the most challenging, but it's there. That's the, that's the job description. That's the job description for dad. What is dad meant to do? Work, care, admonish. That's what elders are meant to do, because elders are fathers. It's a fatherly role. And we mustn't throw that baby out. Spiritual fathering. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The second one, which is directly connected to that, is around male sexuality. There's an obvious direct link here, because fatherhood is defined sexually. And whatever the um, gender... uh, ideologues might say, women cannot be fathers. People are saying, the madness of our world want us to seriously believe that women can be fathers and men can be mothers. No. These things are defined sexually. (laughs) Women cannot be fathers. Men cannot be mothers. And that is why female elder is an oxymoron. Because what is it to be an elder? It's to be a father. You cannot have female fathers. You cannot have female elders. It's a oxymoron. So the claim that we hear, I picked up in the book and on the podcast, is that male sexuality is toxic. And again, the reality is that it certainly can be. And I know that I'm on very dangerous ground here. I think this is a group probably with enough maturity and grace to to hear me, even if I don't express it as, as, as carefully as perhaps I should. I'll try to be careful. But I think there are two Two particular dangers for us in this. One is that we can, the danger of minimizing the reality of, yes, toxic sexuality. And probably that has been the danger of the, that was the mistake of the past. And that's reflected in stuff like this, of distorted sexuality, which led to abuse and all the stories we we know and feel so sorry and ashamed of. So we mustn't minimize the reality of toxic male sexuality. I think there's another danger, though, which I think is perhaps more the danger of this generation, which is to pathologize what is normal and to see all male sexuality as somehow pathological in a way which just isn't accurate, correct, right, fair, or reasonable. 
Now, I think the, the reality is that male sexuality can be dangerous. And again, this is obvious just in terms of just biology, that compared to women, men on average are significantly long, larger and stronger, and many men have a strong sex drive. And those things mean that male sexuality can be dangerous. And that is why societies have always developed mechanisms to try and seek to safeguard women and children. Because men left kind of unguarded, male sexuality left unguarded, can be very dangerous. And women and children need to be safeguarded from that. But the danger is when we start seeing all male sexuality as toxic. And I think the podcast has, has done that to some extent, actually gone quite heavy on that. And what you end up then with potentially is men who are, well, only neutered men are acceptable. Neutered men are acceptable. And I think there is a sense in which male sexuality is meant to be dangerous because men are meant to be potent. And it's a bit like fire and water. Fire and water are dangerous things. But if they are channeled and used properly, if they're disciplined, if they're controlled, if they're contained, if they're channeled, then they are very valuable and useful things. A male sexuality needs to be controlled and contained and channeled, but not emasculated. Emasculated men is not a better option for our society than the toxic masculinity. And so to, to say that and to acknowledge the reality of the potency of male sexuality isn't, doesn't mean that male sexuality is always abusive. We do need to find ways in which male sexuality is is acknowledged and channeled in a healthy way. Now, let's think about Mark Driscoll and all we've heard on the podcast and what many of us heard from him at the time. Uh, the reality, a lot of what Mark Driscoll said was so unhelpful. It was. And the way he said it was so unhelpful. And some of us got, I can say this about myself, confess, got too caught up in the moment and, and weren't discriminating enough, didn't do enough reflection. So the things that Driscoll talked about, Jesus is a cage fighter and all that kind of stuff, that kind of view of masculinity, just stupid things to say. Not, not, no theological grounding in it, unhelpful. But the reality is, I think, that actually some of the things that Driscoll said about male sexuality were actually really helpful. And just on the podcast, there was a clip in one of the early episodes where they had him talking, and he was talking to the men in the church, and giving his vision for the men in the church. And I, I, I was so moved by it, because it was so compelling. Uh, so you might have heard it, he's talking about, I want you to be, I want men like Zechariah, full of the Holy Spirit. You marry, marry women like Elizabeth. Women, I want you women to be like Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to have children like John, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and follow Jesus. And there's a, a vision there, which actually was incredibly powerful and helpful and we need to hear. And even things, this, going a little bit further, even things like when he was reflecting on what happened at the Twin Towers and then saying, they've got men like that and what we have is a gay man crying at a piano. Actually, there was a, he was putting his finger on something which was real. And we do need male potency but we need it channeled and controlled and contained and not as Jesus' cage fighter, 
Now, Jesus is washer of feet and pastor and servant and shepherd. And what, is, what does it mean to be? What does it mean to be a real man? It means that. It means that. And so there is a there's a huge amount of bathwater to, to to sort through here, and I'm just kind of splashing some things around. But somewhere in the bathwater, there is a baby we need to hold on to. So there's, a, there's a, so much more to say on this, and we need to strain it out, and there's mucky water, but there is a baby there. The, the third, third baby is around sexual purity. So the claim which has come through is that so-called purity culture is abusive. And again, the, the context in the U.S., with the much bigger evangelical world, quite different from what we experienced in the UK. And uh, we didn't have the same kind of purity culture narrative, although some of it came to us. But the reality is that sexual purity is important. It is. And the, the, the line comes through now from those who are deconstructing that purity culture is abusive. Well, there are things about that which I don't think were wise or helpful, but actually sexual purity is important. And we don't want a model of sexuality that is oppressive. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that one of the things that our current world has opened our eyes perhaps to more is that we probably have a greater alertness and sensitivity to questions of th- issues like sexual orientation and such like in a way which wouldn't have been the case 30, 40, 50 years ago. And... Yeah, it's not as easy to be as black and white about things as we used to be. And, and I think that's good. I think being more flexible and understanding actually is helpful and wise. And that when people come into our churches, we just have to assume that they're going to be sexually in a complete mess because everybody is and completely confused about the nature and purpose of sexuality and to kind of be able to deal with that rather than just have the kind of the hard lines that we used to have and recognizing the reality of gender confusion and same-sex attraction, all those things, to have a greater kind of softness towards the pe- people in that situation, because that's how everybody is, uh, is good. But there is a line. And the line is that sex outside marriage of a man and a woman is wrong. And that's the line which we need to hold. And the trouble is that so much of the church now has ditched the baby with the bathwater and said, well, the line's gone, and we can't apply it anymore. Um, I read uh, recently this, this book, Trans, by Helen Joyce, which I think probably is the most, well, at least the most comprehensive book I've read on the subject in terms of examining where we've got to, where, where we came, how we got to where we are, and why it's so crazy. She's, 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 an, she's an atheist, and she holds moral positions very different from the ones I would hold, but it's a very helpful overview of where we are at in the trans issue. But a particular issue I had with her was that she's a strong defender of same-sex marriage. But of course, the problem is that if you redefine something as fundamental as marriage, you actually lose everything. That's what she doesn't see. So you, you can't redefine marriage and then expect everything else to, to still hold together. It just doesn't. If you, if you redefine marriage, you do end up with male lesbians and biological men playing women's sports and all the rest of the things which she thinks are crazy and is trying to stop. And so we do need to fight for sexual purity. Now, we're not, we want to avoid hypocrisy, we want to avoid judgmentalism, we want to avoid coercion. We're not fighting for the 1950s. 
But we do need to fight for a prophetic vision of what humanity is, which is people made in the image of God, male and female, he created them, in his image he made them. And that prophetic image of what humanity is and what humanity is meant to be, the whole narrative arc of scripture of beginning with a marriage and ending with a wedding feast and human marriage meaning to, meaning, to, meaning to prophetically reflect that bigger story of the relationship between Christ and his people. There's a, there's a bigger story here which you've got to fight for. We're not, we're not fighting for a, a 1950s white picket fence vision. We're fighting for a prophetic vision of what humanity is meant to be. And so we need to fight for that baby. Don't throw the bathwater out. Don't throw the bathwater out, but not the baby. The, the fourth baby is evangelical piety. So the claim that I've picked up is that uh, if you try and insist upon spiritual disciplines, well, that is abusive. And one of the things that has come out in the story of Jonathan Fletcher and John Smythe and the rest is about what happened in the Ewan camps. Uh, the Ewan camps where... Uh, which John Smythe uh, was chair of, of, of Ewan. It's 20, 30 minutes from here, Claysmore School, just up the road here in Dorset, and it gives me a bit of a shiver every time I go past there. Uh, but this actually long story of over decades of, of gathering boys from the top public schools to um, train them to be men for God and release them out into culture to kind of cap capture society. There's a whole lot to say there about that in terms of some things which are good, in terms of making disciples, some things which are very questionable, the, whole, the kind of whole elitist notion of we'll target the top 30 public schools in the country. and that, I mean, there's massive questions about that. For Christians, there should be. Anyway, without getting into the politics of that. And it's a mixed story. Um, we had Simon Gilbo with us here recently, and I asked him about it. He went to Harrow. I said to him, you must have, as a Harrow boy, you must have been in the UN world. He said, oh, yeah. And, Jonathan Fletcher wrote to me every week, and I was so encouraged by him, and I never saw anything dodgy. So there's, there's a mixed story there. But anyway, one of the criticisms that has come is about the, how Ewan ran. And then once boys left the camps and were back at school or back at Cambridge, and uh, how they were being discipled. And it was this kind of evangelical piety of rigorous, disciplined Bible study, prayer, confession, accountability. That's what Ewan did. That was the model. And the reality is that there's always a fine line between what, what, what is helpful in spiritual disciplines and what, what becomes controlling. It's a, it is a fine line. And I've seen that in my own history in terms of people or ministries which have crossed that line, where it's shepherding has become heavy shepherding. And, and the line between a healthy encouragement of spiritual disciplines has been crossed into something which actually becomes heavy, controlling, and its worst, abusive. But, elders, what is the job description? Work hard, care, and admonish. There is a call upon us to discipline people spiritually. And again, we can think of the parallel dangers in family life. That in family life, parents can be controlling and parents can be manipulative. And God knows we all spend enough time trying to pastor and help people who've come from controlling, manipulative family backgrounds. And some of you have and have had all kinds of stuff to work through yourselves in terms of resolving those things. 
But the other side of that is that you can respond to that danger by actually failing to parent. And where we are culturally is probably more that problem now of, of parents who fail to parent, chase around after their kids. The, the, the metaphor we use here at Gateway is um, shepherds, not sheepdogs. That I observe contemporary parents, and they are like sheepdogs. They chase their children, and literally. So they do that literally. Children are running around. Children are running around on a Sunday morning in church, and the parents are kind of behind them going, oh, and they do it emotionally and metaphorically in every way. It's kind of a, a sheepdog thing. They're chasing after the children, whereas actually parents are called to be shepherds, and of course the biblical model of a shepherd is that you lead and the sheep follow because they know that's the best thing for them. It's very different from a... Oh. Uh, Luther, uh, in uh, Michael Reeves' book, Rejoice and Tremble, he co- quotes Luther, who said this, Let us call these two faults by name, softness and harshness. Concerning the former, Zechariah 11.17 says, O shepherd, you who desert the flock. Concerning the latter, Ezekiel 34.4 says, With force and harshness you have ruled them. These are the two main faults from which all the mistakes of pastors come. Either too soft or too harsh. It's a difficult line to walk. And we, as we think about this, as we think about evangelical piety, we do also need to, again, recognize the cultural moment in which we're in, that there are, there are things which in our society were not regarded as normal or acceptable as they would have been previously or still are in other cultures. And so that does mean we have to be alert to those things. And we, we have to sift what is cultural? As we sift through this water, this bathwater, what is cultural, what is biblical? And always, always the phrase I'm thinking is the antidote to abuse is not disuse, but proper use. And so we do need to keep hold of the baby of evangelical piety. And there's an awful lot to navigate here, just as there is in being a parent, but we need to do it. That actually, yeah, holding people to account, asking accountability questions being disciplined about reading the Bible, praying, all that stuff, all that urine camp stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of bathwater which needs to be slopped out, but there's a baby which needs to be held onto. And then the last one is um, the reality of hell. So this came through on the podcast, or it might have been in the book, or probably in both. This, this claim that telling people about hell is cruel. No, not telling people about hell is cruel. And we don't have to kind of fit the old fine brimstone stereotype. We don't have to wear our turn or burn t-shirts as uh, we used to back in the 1980s. That's probably not the best pastoral or evangelistic strategy. But we, do you know, people were in Brighton, when the evangelism teams we had in Brighton, people literally walked along Brighton Pier with turn or burn t-shirts on. I didn't have one. Did you be there? You go. Repent or perish. Turn or burn on the front. Repent or perish on the back. Let me tell you the good news about Jesus. Uh. <laughs> but we, we we need to remember we are we are dealing in heaven and hell realities, and if we forget that, then we get out. Don't be in ministry. If, if, if you forget that, then you are, all you're going to be at best is a social worker. And if you want to be a social worker, go and be a social worker. 
But as ministers of the gospel, we have to remember we are dealing in heaven and hell realities. It's not cruel to tell people about hell. It's cruel not to. And kind of summing that up and actually summing all of this up means we need to be courageous. If we're going to, if we're going to have the courage to look in the bath, and there's stuff that we do need to, stuff we need to get rid of. There is. But there's babies we need to hold, of, hold on to. Again, in, in, in Rejoice and Tremble, um, he, he quotes Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon being typically Spurgeon, talking about the English reformer Hugh Latimer, who you remember was eventually burnt at the stake with, with Nicholas Ridley. And uh, Spurgeon says this, It was bravely done by old Hugh Latimer when he preached before Henry VIII. It was the custom of the court preacher to present the king with something on his birthday, and Latimer presented Henry VIII with a pocket handkerchief with this text in the, cor- in the corner, Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. <laughs> a very suitable text for Bluff Harry. And then he preached a sermon before his most gracious majesty against sins of lust, and he delivered himself with tremendous force, not forgetting or abridging the personal application. And the king said that next time Latimer preached, the next Sunday, he should apologize, and he would make him so, mold his sermon as to eat his own words. Latimer thanked the king for letting him off so easily. When the next Sunday came, he stood up in the pulpit and said, Hugh Latimer, thou art this day to preach before the high and mighty Prince Henry, King of Great Britain and France. If thou sayest one single word that displeases his majesty, he will take thy head off. Therefore, mind what thou art at. But then he said, Hugh Latimer, thou art this day to preach before the Lord God Almighty, who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. And so tell the king the truth outright. And so he did. His performance was equal to his resolution. <laughs> However, the king did not take off his head, but respected him all the more. The fear of the Lord gave him strong confidence, as it will any who cleave close to their colors. Fear, fear him, you saints, and ye will then have nothing else to fear. Yeah, we, this is a, a day when we do need to have courage. These, these are courage-testing days in so many areas, and so many of us have been through the mill the last couple of years, and some far more than others, and it's taken real courage. Uh, I think some of the stories that, I mean, particularly the guys in the States, and the stories that Brian and Donnie have told me about their context and stuff they've had to face, over all the stupid stuff, over face masks and everything else, and the divisions there have been, and yeah, just how politics has captured people more than the gospel, and it takes real, real courage to, to stand firm. And, we need to fear the right thing. We need to have a fear of the Lord. That needs to be true of us. And, and this is what our churches need. It's what our society needs. Because our society is lost and hell-bound. And so many churches in their desperation to get rid of the muddy bathwater have flung the babies and left them to die. And we need to have the courage to say, actually, there's some things to hold on to here. And because some times those things have been abused and misapplied and twisted and corrupted, that doesn't mean we get rid of them. The antidote to abuse is not disuse, but proper use. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that we would have the courage to stand our ground, stand for what we believe. Lord, give us the, the, the grace and the humility just to be circum, circumspect and reflective and, 
and to, Lord, help us to see our blind spots and help us, Lord, where there's mucky bathwater which needs to be drained out. I pray, help us to have the courage to do that. But, Lord, let us, let us not abandon the things which we need to hold on to. So would you help us to navigate these complex times with real humility and real courage and real grace in you. Amen.